You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by the Whatever Happened To series for the young and easily influenced. Envision a future where our most popular children's books are written by today's Tommy Larens, Dennis Pragers, and Carl Roves. It may sound horrible, but the creators of the Whatever Happened To series have made it hilarious. Like Rolling Together 1984 and Everyone Poops, they've created a series of parody books that boil down for future generations whatever happened to insects, Mexican food, nipples, even colonoscopies, and explain away the end of the world in the most simplistic, unscientific, and frankly, made-up terms. This is weird and devious and brutally funny satire. And the really brilliant kicker is that part of the proceeds from every sale go to a champion cause, including the likes of the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the Violence Policy Center, and Equality Now, in an effort to keep the bleak and surreal prophecies included in their pages from ever coming to pass. For those of you who have discovered John Oliver's Marlon Bundo or Stephen Colbert's Whose Boat Is This Boat? The Whatever Happened To series is your next step into the future. And if you go to whateverhappenedseries.com constant, you can get a $25 e-subscription right now, with $2 of each book going to the champion cause. That's $22 given away to great causes and three measly bucks for the 11 e-books. So go now to whateverhappenedseries.com slash constant to get your deal today. The future will thank you while it still can. Here is a terrifically incomplete list of things that trigger my nostalgia reflex. Belgian waffles, ska, all ska, trampolines, anything scented cucumber melon or cumber melon, shopping carts, long story, fall, Studio Ghibli movies, the Obama administration. But even an autumnal Obama Cumbermelon waffle address, animated by Hayao Miyazaki, scored by Mustard Plug, and delivered on a bouncing shopping cart, couldn't hope to give me the warm and fuzzies like this one tiny amygdala-tingling sound. Oh, yeah, that's the stuff. Oh, give me one more hit. This is the startup sound for a video game console, the boldest, most daring gaming system ever. 20 years ago, 
On the marketing-friendly date of $9,999, Sega released a little white box that turned the industry on its head. In the first 24 hours, they sold more than a quarter million units, earning nearly $100 million. It was the biggest entertainment retail event in history. Not the biggest video game launch. The biggest launch of anything. Movies, albums, Beanie Babies, you name it. In two weeks, half a million boxes had flown off of American store shelves. By Christmas, Sega had 31% of the video game market. In three months, Sega was neck and neck with Sony's PlayStation, which had been out since 1994, and the Nintendo 64, which released in 1996. Sega's innovative new machine was sweeping the world and catapulting the company into the leading position. A year and a half later, the console was discontinued. Dead. In April of 2001, they dropped the price from its original $199.99 to $99.99, then $79, then $59 to finally clear out store shelves. Sega's fall from grace was complete. It exited the hardware business and became a shell of its former self, developing games for its once rivals. It was an end of an era, and for the believers, the fans, the early adopters, it came as a shocking blow. How could the most promising, interesting, fantastical machine have crashed from such heights so quickly and so hard? Let's find out, shall we? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, A Dreamcast Deferred. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Between the years 1415 and 1420, Italian architect and painter Filippo Brunelleschi started drawing in a weird new way. He divided his canvas into a square grid and viewed his subject, in this case the Palazzo Vecchio, through a square hole in a wood panel with a set of crosshairs in it. He would look at one square of his subject through his crosshairs and then copy that square onto the grid of his canvas. When he had finished, he had a very special drawing, one of the first pieces of art that followed linear perspective. This changed everything. Before Brunelleschi, almost all painting was flat, or oddly proportioned. It didn't convey a realistic sense of three-dimensional space. But after Brunelleschi's experiments into perspective made their way to the painting public, art suddenly had depth. Like, 
literal depth. Artists all over Italy took Brunelleschi's lessons to heart and began painting in a totally new way, with three dimensions, points of focus, one, two, or even three-point perspective. If only there were some term for this development, some name for the era of art that Brunelleschi's experiments helped to kickstart. All right, the Italian Renaissance. The difference between pre-Renaissance and post-Renaissance painting is one of the starkest differences imaginable. It's an era of innovation, the likes of which we'd seldom see again. We could do a story about that Renaissance right now, about the battling ideologies, the dead-end experiments, the push and pull of incredible minds who threw themselves into murky waters to chart the very limits of art. But that would be comparatively boring, because the Renaissance has got nothing on video games. Sound hyperbolic? Well, I don't think so. During the Renaissance, artists strove to find new ways to make art and new uses for art. They sought to figure out the rules or best practices for how painting and sculpture work. In that sense, Renaissance artists weren't so different from early filmmakers who had to figure out the internal logic of cinema, or early comic book writers who pushed the boundaries of what stories they could tell and how they could tell them with sequences of images. But there was painting before the Renaissance. There were even competing schools on perspective. Film was novel, but it shared a lot of rules with theater and photography. Comic books could draw from hieroglyphics and cantistoria. Video games, on the other hand, were a total and complete wilderness. There were no guidestones, even crude ones, to draw from. Early game makers were true explorers who were figuring out how to do a thing that nobody had ever had cause or means to do before. Deliver a creative experience where their audience is an active, integral participant. And just as linear perspective brought out the brilliance of some of the past's greatest minds, the gaming renaissance of the last 40 years has revealed some of the greatest geniuses of our lifetimes. And if that pitch isn't enough to keep you around for the rest of this episode, well, and it's the best one I've got, so I will see you in two weeks, I guess, when we'll be talking about I don't know, windshields or something. Many of the earliest video games didn't know what they were. They thought they were simulacrums of sporting events or card games. The most famous of the early games was Pong, which was essentially crude, digitized ping pong. Pong was developed by Alan Alcorn for Atari in 1972 and quickly became a global phenomenon. In 1977, Atari launched their first home console and the first home video game system to really go anywhere, the Atari 2600. By then, developers had the horsepower and understanding that allowed games to be more than just abstracted sports, although there were still plenty of those. But the real difference between games and video games was still somewhat shrouded. And as a result, the early days of the Atari were rough going. The box and its games sold decently well, but throughout the 70s it failed to hit its relatively modest goals. And even though the video game marketplace was small, Atari didn't have it to themselves for long. The Magnavox Odyssey, the Sears Telegames console, the Vectrix, the Bally Astrocade, the ColecoVision. The early age of video game consoles are like that part of a David Attenborough documentary where the submarine dives into the deep dark and shines its light on abyssal aliens that don't seem like they could possibly exist on this planet. There's no better example of what I mean than Mattel's Intellivision. 
a wood panel box with two built-in controllers that featured a grand total of 16 buttons each and a flat silver circle that you could theoretically use like a joystick, though I wouldn't recommend it. Four of those 16 buttons were on the sides of the long vertical rectangle, which made them all but impossible to press. The rest were laid out like a touchtone phone, and the games included plastic overlays that went over the numbers and provided the only conceivable way you could hope to understand how you were meant to play them. All of these devices were essentially novelties, and not big selling ones. Then, in 1980, a game came to Atari's 2600 that changed everything. Space Invaders. Already big in arcades, Atari licensed Taito's alien shooting mega hit to the 2600, quickly doubling their total units and raking in $2 billion of sales that year. In 1981, Atari doubled in size again, and again in 1982 with the help of the 7 million copy selling console port of Namco's Megaton Smash Pac-Man. By 1982, video games were the cool thing, as evinced by this not especially catchy tune, Pac-Man Fever. Which unfathomably peaked at number 9 on the Billboard Hot 100 music charts. Atari was the king of the hill, but a rising tide was lifting all boats. Each of the four top consoles had a sizable library of internally developed, or first-party, games. And each was also home to a growing selection of third-party games, especially those of the original independent game studio, Activision. There were only two problems. These game libraries weren't just big, they were too big. Each publisher was rushing out game after game, irrespective of whether people were buying. The other problem, most of what they were selling, was terrible. The Atari port of Pac-Man is a great example of each of these problems. Sure, it sold 7 million copies, but Atari had printed 12 million. More than there were Atari systems out in the wild. And Atari Pac-Man sucked bad. Ooh, just listen to that. The sound barely does justice to how terrible the game was. The famous ghosts, Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde, can't be displayed on screen simultaneously, so the screen rotates, showing a ghost per frame. So it looks like there's just one ghost arbitrarily and rapidly teleporting around the screen in a seizure-inducing mania. And Activision represented yet another difficulty. Activision had been founded in 1979 by David Crane and three other Atari programmers who left the company because Atari and its parent company, Warner Brothers, wouldn't give either named credit or residuals to them. Crane and his cohorts knew the 2600 inside and out and were able to fashion some of its best games, including most notably Pitfall. With Activision's success, a slew of would-be game makers entered the market, but most either didn't know how to program games or didn't care about making them good. Because what did it matter? There wasn't much of a quality bottleneck out there. 
Atari and the other console makers let anybody who paid them royalties put whatever they farted out onto their system, and there wasn't a robust, popular video game press for people to turn to in order to see if the game they were picking up was terrible. So publishers, including Atari themselves, just bulldozed shit all over their own marketplace. In the most infamous case, that bulldozing was literal. In June of 1982, Universal Pictures released Steven Spielberg's indelible mass-market masterpiece, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. E.T. was a kind of popular that not even the Marvel Universe could appreciate today. It was everywhere, from lunchboxes to cereals to a book comprised of actual fan mail called Letters to E.T., which includes this poetic love letter to the film's director. Dear Mr. Spielberg, I am a little old lady, 73 and a half, and I went to see your movie, E.T. I loved the movie, but when you pushed my cry button, I lost my two contact lenses that I have to wear after cataract surgery. Since they cost $325 each, I thought just maybe you would like to help me pay for two new ones. Oh yes, I also had to pay $1.50 senior admission to see the movie, but since I didn't see the whole movie, I'm out that too. It will cost me another buck fifty to see it again. After I lost the lenses, I missed about 20 minutes of the movie. Sincerely, Mrs. Vera Binder. <laughs> again, I just want to emphasize that was published in an actual book officially authorized by Spielberg and Universal. With the bar set that low, of course there had to be a video game. Atari negotiated the rights and put Howard Scott Warshaw, one of their top designers, on the project. By himself. Warshaw was given the job on July 27, 1982, with the stipulation that it had to be done by September 1st in order to roll out for the Christmas holiday. That's four weeks for one man to turn the biggest movie of all time into a successful video game. And while E.T. is a great movie, it doesn't instantly lend itself to a video game translation, does it? Let's just ruin whatever small amount of intrigue we may have going on here. E.T. the video game is a truly terrible game. Google worst games ever made, and it'll rate in the top 10 on any list you pull up. Atari probably knew the game was bad. They didn't even bother to playtest it before its release. But that didn't matter. Atari Pac-Man was a bad game, but it still sold 7 million copies. And E.T. was a far bigger character than Pac-Man. It didn't matter if the product was awful. It was gonna sell like gangbusters anyway. But it didn't. That Christmas season, millions of copies of E.T., Pac-Man, and literally hundreds of other games languished unsold in malls and retailers throughout America. First- and third-party developers were pushing out more than 400 games a year, most of which were just awful. Companies like Purina Dog Chow and Quaker Oats decided that they should get in on this video games thing with no appreciable justification. Even Schlock Rocker's Journey got in on the action, with a thing that in several ways resembled a game named Journey Escape, which featured all their greatest hits you can't help but love. 
like this little ditty. And uh, only one other song, which was not by the band. Retailers were overwhelmed with unmovable stock, games and consoles galore that took up valuable floor space. They started asking publishers and manufacturers to buy back their product. Many games companies didn't have the liquidity to do that, so they just started going bankrupt. Stores, being unable to recoup, started shoving these games into the bargain bin just to get rid of them. This really got the death spiral into full swing. New $35 games couldn't compete with buckets of $3 shovelware, but the poor quality of the priced-to-move merchandise just reinforced customers' impressions that games weren't worth the cost. This was the great video game crash of 1983. In addition to a glut of poor quality goods, the personal computer was finally becoming viable, and a price war between IBM, Commodore, and several other PC makers meant that it was becoming just as cheap to buy a home computer, which could play games and do, well, very little, really, a word processing. In 1983, the video game market was worth $3.2 billion. Two years later, in 1985, the total sales for the whole industry were just 100 million. That's a 97% drop. Most of the home consoles dropped out completely. Atari barely managed to stick around. In a perfect analogy for the industry as a whole, they loaded up three semi-trailers with unused games, nearly a million copies of E.T., Pac-Man, and others, drove them out to the New Mexico desert in the middle of the night and buried them there. In the early 80s, it wasn't clear what video games were. Most people outside of the industry and plenty within it thought they were a hula hoop, a fad with limited appeal and lifespan. The crash of 83 seemed to back that idea up. By 1985, everybody knew what video games were. They were dead. And then came Nintendo. Nintendo was born in 1889 Kyoto, as Nintendo Kopai, a playing card company that succeeded on its beautiful, hand-painted illustrations, 19th-century Japan's stiff anti-import policies, and the Yakuza, or Japanese Mafia, who ran the gambling dens where Nintendo's Hanafuda cards were used. In the 1960s, Nintendo branched out in a number of baffling directions. They sold instant rice, remote-controlled vacuum cleaners, taxi cabs, and even ran a chain of by-the-hour love hotels. All of these undertakings failed, and in 1964, Nintendo's stock fell more than 90%. The playing card company was on the ropes. In 1965, Nintendo's president, Hiroshi Yamauchi, was visiting the playing card factory and noticed a young maintenance engineer playing with a funny toy, an accordion robot arm that extended out and grabbed stuff like an Acme product Wile E. Coyote might have ordered. The engineer was named Gunpei Yokoi, and he had constructed the arm in his free time. Yamauchi saw potential, not just in the toy, but in its maker. Nintendo went on to sell over a million Ultra Hands, and Gunpei Yokoi was moved from his role maintaining conveyor belts to product development. Promoting Gunpei quickly proved to be a very smart decision. In the late 60s and early 70s, he developed a bevy of successful toys for Nintendo. While Atari was taking over the world of home gaming in the late 70s and early 80s, 
the Japanese gambling card turned toy company was starting to reinvent itself yet again with its own line of video games. It started with the Color TV game, a series of machines that played built-in super simple games like tennis, hockey, and volleyball, each of which were all eh, pretty much just Pong. But at the same time, Gunpei Yokoi was developing arcade games, as well as a line of simple, portable LCD game-slash-clocks called Game & Watch. With Game & Watch and arcade games like Donkey Kong, Nintendo suddenly had on its hands a series of popular hits that made everything that came before look minor. In 1983, at the same time that Atari and its dozens of competitors were lining up for the guillotine, Nintendo released its Famicom console in Japan. It was a moderate success, but there was a problem with some of the chipsets that froze or bricked the system. In 1985, with the market entirely collapsed and every last company, including Atari, throwing in the towel on their own video game consoles, Nintendo decided it was time to get in for real. Everything about their launch was brilliant. American stores weren't putting game machines on the floor anymore, so Nintendo rebranded the Famicom for its U.S. release as the NES. It wasn't a video game machine. It was the Nintendo Entertainment System. On the Japanese Famicom, game cartridges loaded at the top, just like how they did for the Atari and Intellivision and the rest. Not so for the American NES. It took games into a horizontal-facing bay that made it look less like a ColecoVision and more like a VCR. And in its most elaborate bid to convince toy stores to carry the machine, Nintendo packed in a plastic robot named Rob that could spin plastic tops. But that's just the marketing. The most important lesson Nintendo learned from Atari Gate was about quality. When David Crane and his gang of four left Atari to form Activision, Atari had sued, saying the new company had no right to sell games for their system. Atari lost that suit, paving the way for everybody and their uncles to dump bad and broken product all over the market. Nintendo addressed this problem in two ways. They built the Famicom and NES to only run game cartridges that included a special proprietary lockout chip that only they could make. If you wanted to make a game for the NES, you'd need Nintendo's approval, their seal of approval, which they put on the box of every authorized game. The Nintendo seal of approval didn't mean the game was good, but it meant that it had passed Nintendo's internal standards. It wasn't offensive, it wasn't derivative, and it wasn't broken. That meant a lot to wary Atari-burned gamers. It didn't hurt that the NES hardware itself was so much more powerful than its predecessors. Sprites were bigger, more detailed, and could be multicolored. On the Atari, a game's screen was basically locked in place so that every game was more or less stuck with static boards. With the NES, the screen could scroll to the left, to the right, up and down. Games were no longer locked in place, and levels could sprawl off the edge of the television. And, considering podcasts are an audio medium, we should mention the sound. Gone were the rudimentary bleeps and bloops. On the NES, you could have sound effects on top of multi-track music pieces, music that is burned into the memories of millions of millennials and Gen Xers. Like this. Or this. Or, especially, this. 
but we'll get back to that one. More important than the hardware or even the marketing, though, were the games. It's not just that the video games developed by Nintendo were better than the ones that came before. It's that they were beginning to work out what video games really were. Video games aren't the same as analog games. That might seem obvious, but there's one very important way in which that's true that you might not have thought of before. Let's imagine that tomorrow, civilization explodes. Not too hard to imagine, come to think of it, but let's not get bogged down in that. A thousand years from now, the remnants of humanity are getting their act back together when they discover something, a miraculously preserved deck of cards. For a while, they puzzle over what they could be. Maybe money? Or a form of writing? No, no. They must be a game, it's eventually concluded. But what game? The future archaeologists futz around for a while and eventually invent a rule set they think works. They announce it to the post-apocalyptic world, who start making their own decks to play. You know what game they'd be playing? No, you don't. Because whatever game the future would invent with our standard 52-card deck, it doesn't exist now. And those people will never stumble upon Solitaire or Blackjack or Gin Rummy. If those same future archaeologists excavated a football stadium or a baseball diamond or a soccer arena complete with appropriate balls and accoutrements, they would still never manage to recreate the rule set of those games without some source of external help. Throw away the instructions from a Monopoly board and hand it to a group of kids who've never played before, and there is no way they could piece together a proper playthrough. Because the rules of traditional analog games and sports aren't internal. They have to be taught. They have to be built through consensus. Taffel was a board game played in the Nordic world between the 4th and 12th centuries. We have complete boards and pieces. We have a verbal and written history of its play. We even have some variants derived from it that are still played today. But even with all of that, nobody is sure how a game of Taffel worked. In some ways, analog games and sports are like Renaissance portraiture and religious art, where visual metaphors are culturally learned. If that nobleman was painted with a dog, it meant he was loyal. Why? Because that's just what it was understood to mean. Or theater. Imagine bringing someone who's never seen or heard of Western theater before to see a production. The lights come up on a kitchen where some people yammer on about the money they're meant to receive and oh, what they're going to do with that money when it finally comes, just you wait. Then the lights go out. When the lights come up again, it's the next day and the people are concerned because instead of the money, an ominous letter arrived. How is your virgin theatergoer to understand that a blackout means time is passing? That convention makes no obvious logical sense. But it's something that we know culturally. It's a part of a shared artistic grammar we all speak. Video games don't work like any of that. Or they don't have to, at least. The most important difference between video games and every other creative medium that came before them is that each one has to make its own grammar and teach that grammar to the player in situ. In effect, video games are the purest example of postmodernism. They operate by internally consistent sets of rules that their makers create and must communicate to the audience. 
and I gave you your thesis topic right there, Rory. Jump on it. If our future dystopian archaeologists in the year 2000X next dig up an operable NES with a Mega Man 2 cartridge, they will play the same game of Mega Man 2 that I played in 1988. They will beat the same bad guys, jump the same jumps, die by the same spikes as anyone today, yesterday, or 30 years ago. And they'll definitely think that this opening theme is a stone-cold bop. Nintendo's developers weren't the first people to figure this out, but Gunpei Yokoi and his team managed to transform this critical observation into a working, stratified ethos, creating games that were just... better. They were just better, in every way, than anything that had come before. And of all the people under Gunpei Yokoi, the person who understood the nature of games best of all was Shigeru Miyamoto. If you don't know who Shigeru Miyamoto is, well, yes you do. I virtually guarantee you do. Just listen to this. No? Alright, well, how about this? And if that didn't do the trick, then here's the gimme. Super Mario Brothers, the game that made the NES, created, designed, and directed by Shigeru Miyamoto, along with The Legend of Zelda, Star Fox, Donkey Kong, countless others. If video games are our modern renaissance, then Shigeru Miyamoto is Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael, Splinter, and April O'Neil all rolled into one. More ink has been spilled explaining the genius of Super Mario Bros. first level, 1-1, than anyone who hasn't read about it could possibly believe. But we can do a very brief rundown here. In Super Mario Bros., you play as an Italian plumber who can run and jump. If he runs into these little mushroomy-looking guys, he dies. But if he runs into actual mushrooms, he grows bigger. If he jumps on the mushroomy-looking guys, they die. If he touches a flower, he can shoot fireballs. If he touches a star, he becomes temporarily invincible. None of this makes any logical external sense. If our future archaeologists dug up action figures of Mario and his Goomba enemies and the mushroom and the fire flower and the star man, they would never in a million years come up with this absurd rule set. But if they played Super Mario Brothers, they'd understand it in a matter of minutes. It is brilliant. And people all over the world loved it. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Nintendo relaunched the Famicom in Japan and tested it out in New York City in 1985. In early 1986, they started selling it in Los Angeles, Chicago, and San Francisco. And then, the NES was everywhere. By 1990, there were NES machines in 30% of American homes, Famicoms in 20% of Japanese ones, and Nintendo was the most successful publicly traded corporation in the whole country, bigger than Toyota. In one sense, video games did die, but they were reborn as Nintendo games. Do you want to play Nintendo? No Nintendo until you finish your homework. Nintendo was now the word for games, the eponym, like Kleenex or Band-Aid. For a few years, Nintendo were basically peerless, untouchable. But a new creative and commercial industry is an iterative process. And just as Nintendo had learned from watching Atari's mistakes, another company was learning from Nintendo's. That company was... Sega! Sega. In 1964, two American expats working in Japan crossed paths, Marty Bromley and David Rosen. Marty had operated slot machines at Pearl Harbor for the American military through the 1940s until they were outlawed in 1952, when he moved his operation to the other side of the Pacific Rim. Rosen was a former service member who'd been stationed in Japan for the Korean War. After that, he stayed in-country and made a number of improbably successful ventures, like employing Japanese artists to paint portraits over family photographs. Each of them were trying to dominate the Japanese arcade business, Marty with his company Service Games and David with his Rosen Enterprises. They merged the two together, keeping the enterprises and jamming the first two letters of service and games together. Sega. Sega Enterprises. At the time Nintendo was fiddling with love hotels and extendo grabbers, Sega was making electromechanical arcade games like Periscope, a gigantic early submarine game, and pinball cabinets. When arcades moved from clockworks and metal balls to microprocessors and CRT screens, Sega followed, developing early innovative arcade video games like Zaxxon and Buck Rogers. The day that Nintendo made their first stumbling half-launch of the Famicom in Japan, Sega was there too, with their very own console, the SG-1000. The SG-1000 used mostly identical components to the ColecoVision and performed even worse than the original Famicom launch, which you'll remember bricked machines. Over the next few years, Sega attempted to iterate on their console design over and over again. There was the Sega Mark II in 1984, the Sega Mark III in 1985, and finally the Master System in 1986, which was more powerful than the NES and performed... Eh, decently. But it was too little too late. While the hardware wasn't putting much of a dent in Nintendo's lead, Sega was developing some incredible games, and some incredible talent who made them. After four and a half or so largely failed consoles, Sega decided to give it one last shot. 
They had a stable of developers who were the best in the industry and used to cranking out loads of great original games to make up for the lack of outside support they'd received during the Marks 1 through 3 and Master System. They had a bleeding-edge 16-bit motherboard that was powering graphics and sounds for their arcade games that blew away the NES, and the games business was beginning to slump a bit. Nintendo didn't seem to understand why, but Sega did. People wanted something new. Their Mega Drive system could be that thing. Unfortunately for Sega, their timing was not nearly as good as they thought. The Mega Drive launched in Japan in October of 1988, just one week after Super Mario Bros. 3, one of the greatest games ever made, and a cartridge so eagerly anticipated that a whole movie was made around its release. With Fred Savage and Christian Slater. Oh, the swooning, the swooning. By releasing its biggest game of all time right before Sega's new super-powered console, Nintendo managed to suck up all the oxygen. The Mega Drive managed to sell just 400,000 Japanese units in its first year, a good deal better than their previous consoles, but way short of a booming success. That was okay, though, because the Mega Drive wasn't really meant to dominate Japan. Its job was to take over the U.S. Sega had gone through a list of more than 300 names before settling on Mega Drive, but it wouldn't be called that in America. Strangely, the precise reason why seems to be unknown, but probably it stemmed from trademark issues with an already existent American Mega Drive company. In the summer of 1989, American customers were greeted to the Sega Genesis. The little black box was mostly nondescript, with a little bit of circular aerodynamic planing, for whatever reason, around the cartridge slot, but the most important aesthetic feature was written in plain type right below the console's name. Sega Genesis. 16-bit. Most buyers didn't really know what a byte was, but they did know that 16 was twice as many as 8, and they knew the NES was 8. And whatever that extra 8 bits meant exactly, the difference between Nintendo's gray VCR-shaped system and Sega's dark swooping one was night and day. The Genesis came packed in with Altered Beast. Altered Beast was not a very good game, but it was an astounding-looking game, the kind of thing that gamers understood at a glance could never play on their Nintendo. Altered Beast was one of Sega's most successful arcade games, and at the time that it came out, it was an understood fact of life that arcade games had way better graphics than what you could get at home. After the Genesis dropped, that was no longer true. To make this explicit, the slogan that launched along with the Genesis was, We bring the arcade experience home. It wasn't a very winning tactic. A month into the Genesis's life, the company named a new president of Sega of America, Michael Katz, who'd previously worked on Mattel's Intellivision, the ColecoVision, and even for Atari. Katz saw a new strategy. He knew that the very seal of approval system that Nintendo had used to save the gaming industry was now becoming a problem. Third-party developers weren't happy with Nintendo's increasingly tight control on their products, which included exclusive contracts that forbid them from working on other consoles. So Katz decided instead to seek out celebrities. If Sega couldn't get Tecmo to bring their football game over to the Genesis, 
they'd get famed 49ers quarterback Joe Montana to lend his name and image to their own. They got heavyweight champion Evander Holyfield to star in a boxing game, pitcher and L.A. Dodgers coach Tommy Lasorda to license his name to their baseball game. There was Arnold Palmer Golf, Pat Riley Basketball, and Mario Lemieux Hockey. They even got the biggest celebrity license of them all. Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. If Sega could get consumers to buy in via these celebrity games, Katz believed, other third-party developers would jump ship from Nintendo to get away from their strict covenants. But that was just the beginning. He also pushed for a price cut. The Genesis had come to market at $199.99, but when Katz jumped on the scene, he pressed to reduce it to $149.99. That was less than the cost it took to build, ship, and market the box, but Katz saw games as a razor and blade business, where you could sell the initial device at a loss and make your profit on the supplements. Gillette sells razors for cheap because you have to buy more blades down the line. Sega could take a bath on the Genesis because people were going to buy games to play on it. Katz also saw that bring the arcade experience home line as facile. Who cared? Some tiny portion of quarter-chomping mall rats? No. Everybody knew that the real battle for the Genesis was with Nintendo, so why not just say it already? In 1990, he turned to a decidedly more adversarial marketing campaign. Genesis does. 16-bit arcade graphics. You can't do this on Nintendo. Genesis does. 16-bit sports action. You can't do this on Nintendo. Genesis does. Genesis does. Genesis does. Genesis does. Genesis does. Get Joe Montana free, Pat Riley free, Buster Douglas free, Super Monaco GP free, or Collins free. Nintendo. Oh, snap, Nintendo! With Sega of America going all in and Sega of Japan pumping out game after game after game, the Genesis was starting to look like a winner. But it had one more problem to fix. Altered Beast was a dud of a pack-in. It wasn't fun to play, it was frustratingly difficult, and its once amazing visuals were beginning to show their age. What Sega needed was a fun, showcasing mascot. Something to define the system, a character and a game that people needed to play. In short, they needed a Mario killer. Sega of Japan put their best WizKid programmer on the case, Yuji Naka, who had developed some of the best games on the Master System. Along with an international group of advisors and consultants, they came up with a character that single-handedly cemented Sega and their Genesis as major players in the console wars. Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic is a giant, blue, bipedal, red sneaker-wearing hedgehog who battles an egg-shaped mad scientist with a nasty penchant for stuffing animals inside of robots. How does a hedgehog combat such a threat? By running super fast, naturally. It was a wild concept, and Katz was initially skeptical. But really, was it so much stranger than an Italian plumber rescuing a medieval princess from a fire-breathing turtle by jumping on things? Yuji Naka understood the same thing that Miyamoto did, that the logic of a game didn't have to make sense anywhere in the world as long as it made sense within the game. Sonic the Hedgehog came out in 1991, a year after Nintendo released its take on the 16-bit generation, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System or SNES, or, for that matter, 
the SNES. The SNES was more powerful than the Genesis in almost every way, and it had new Mario and Zelda games. But the Genesis had a two-year head start, a lower price, and now the coolest mascot around. By 1993, Sonic the Hedgehog was the most recognizable fictional character in the world. And the Genesis was outselling the SNES 2 to 1, with a 60% share of the gaming marketplace. With the Genesis, Sega had done the impossible, dethroned the unequivocal eponymous king of video games. The only question was, now what? The good news is that Sega had an answer. The bad news is that they also had a half dozen other answers. Some of the people at Sega believed CDs were the future. So in 1991, the same year as Sonic's debut, they released the Sega CD, which became known mostly for a small number of full motion video or FMV games that were essentially low resolution interactive movies. For Sega, the Sega CD was just a toe dip, a way to test the waters of optical media drives. But people who bought the system thought they were buying, you know, a system. That's not quite what they got. Sega never fully supported the CD. They were still primarily working on making Genesis software. And that left a lot of Sega fans feeling burned. It was a feeling they'd quickly grow used to. In 1994, Sega released the 32X, a wonky plastic device that slipped onto the top of the Sega Genesis to transform it into a new 32-bit system. For the low, low price of $159.99, plus the low, low price of $139.99 for the Genesis, gamers could play a couple of games. Compared to the 32X, the Sega CD was a gaming powerhouse. After two years of barely their life, the 32X was discontinued. In that time, only 40 games were made for it. But that was alright too, because neither the Sega CD nor the 32X were actually meant to be Sega's main next-generation phalanx. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Let's be honest. Everybody has something in their life that gets in the way. In the way of success, relationships, or even happiness. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to remove those things. With BetterHelp, you get access to a counselor personally matched to your needs. Depression, family conflicts, anxiety, self-esteem, grief, even sleep trouble. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They've got 3,000 professional licensed therapists across all 50 states and available worldwide via desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. With BetterHelp, you connect online at your own time and pace with video, phone, chat, or text services. All of them safe, private, secure, and confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And because you're a listener to this show... 
you can get 10% off your first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant, simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love and start communicating with them in under 24 hours. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. All right. In order to explain just how pear-shaped things are about to go here, we're going to have to start where things ended up. The next generation of video game hardware, after the Genesis and the SNES, was made up of three machines. The Nintendo 64, the Sony PlayStation, and, to a disastrously smaller degree, the Sega Saturn. By 1993, Sega of Japan was already nearly finished with the design of the Saturn their true, next-gen, CD-based, 32-bit, 3D game console. That's more than a year before the 32X, which was never meant to be anything more than a minor stopgap, was released. In 93, Sega's Japanese hardware team brought the new system to the US to show it off to their American counterparts. The Japanese side of Sega had always been fully in charge of building the tech, but when Tom Kalinske, who took over as president of Sega of America, and his R&D team got a look at the future of Sega, they were distressed. In computing, as in most things, elegance is the name of the game. The more you can get out of the fewest possible parts, the better. The insides of the new Sega Saturn were about as inelegant as you could imagine. Instead of one CPU, it had two. Instead of one graphics card, it had two. Instead of one processor, it had six. It was a juicy, powerful, honking box of tech. But programming for it, getting all that muscle to flex, was incredibly difficult. To give you an idea of just how hard developing for the Saturn really was, even today, 25 years after its initial release, there are still Saturn games that modern computers are incapable of properly emulating. Scared that the architecture of the Japanese-designed box would scare off developers, Kalinsky and Sega of America decided to go around their bosses and try to surreptitiously design a different console, hoping that if they came up with something more powerful and less clunky, they could convince their parent company to see reason. They first went local. Just down the street was Silicon Graphics, who were designing a new chip that Kalinsky thought could do all the work of the Saturn's two CPUs and more. They entered talks and started to build a better, simpler, more powerful box. Eventually, they showed what they were working on to Sega of Japan. Who hated it? Kalinsky had to break the news to Jim Clark, the president of Silicon Graphics, that Sega would be passing on the machine they were building. According to Kalinsky, Clark asked, Well, what should I do now? And he said, Well, there's this other game company up in the Seattle area. I think their name starts with an N. Silicon Graphics took Kalinsky up on his thinly-veiled advice, and the box they'd begun to build for Sega ended up becoming the Nintendo 64. But Kalinsky wasn't done yet. He knew that Nintendo had been working with a Japanese electronics company to build their next machine, and that the deal had fallen through. But the company was still interested in building a gaming console. What if Sega could team up with them? 
Together, they worked out specs for a powerful new CD-based console that would push 3D polygonal graphics like nothing that people had ever been able to see on their TVs. But when they brought the blueprints and the plan to Sega of Japan, they again shot it down. They thought the future of gaming, long-term, was still mostly 2D. Once again, Kalinske had to tell a company with which he'd developed an alternative machine that they were up a creek. But in this case, that company was named Sony, and they didn't take their work to another competitor. They became another competitor, the Sony PlayStation. On November 22, 1994, the Sega Saturn launched in Japan with its dueling CPUs, graphic cards, and six discordant processors. Sega was now juggling a whole lot of balls. They were still supporting the Mega Drive, or Genesis, with a new Sonic game on the horizon. They had the Sega CD, the 32X, their battery-munching color handheld Game Gear, the kid-centered, touch-screened Sega Pico, and now they had the Saturn. That was six distinct, discrete gaming consoles at once. But there was even more than that. In the background, Sega was developing at least two other machines, a 16-bit portable successor to the Game Gear, which proved too expensive to sell, and the Sega VR. The Sega VR was a special kind of blunder that the company embarrassingly buried in an unmarked midnight grave. In the mid-90s, virtual reality was the talk of the town, but nobody could figure out how to bring it to the consumer market at an acceptable cost. Sega broke the code. They paired up with a small startup that had figured out a way to provide virtual reality head tracking at a low cost. At the time, the tech necessary to have a headset follow along with a user's head movements cost thousands of dollars. But Ono Sendai had figured out a workaround for just pennies per unit. At 1993's Consumer Electronics Show, they unveiled the Sega VR. I put it on and suddenly, oh, I'm deep in a future world of fast-paced action. You're totally immersed in another world. Set to cost just $199, and with an opening volley of five games, the Sega VR was given a release schedule of winter 1994. They ran ads and promotions about the machine, planted stories in the official Sega magazine and network news. But as winter of 1994 approached, no more specific date came with it. In fact, soon enough, the company wasn't talking about the Sega VR at all. Once winter of 94 had come and gone, Sega finally released a statement saying that they had scrapped the headset. Why? According to the official press release, it was because the Sega VR had proved so immersive and so realistic that players couldn't handle it. What that really meant was that when they began playtesting it, they quickly found out that virtually everyone who strapped on the virtual headset almost immediately became actually nauseous. Sega of America had lost the fight to fix the Saturn and inadvertently helped create the two machines that would bury it in the process. Customers were confused about what they were supposed to buy. Was the Genesis still the thing? And if not, what was its successor? That Sega CD thing? This 32X dongle? And hey, whatever happened to that virtual reality dealie? It was time for Kalinske to take the reins and make it clear that the future was the Saturn and what that meant. He announced in March of 1995 that it would release in America on Saturn Day. Yes, you heard me, Saturn Day, September 2nd, 1995. 
but Sega of Japan wanted it out sooner. They were seizing support for the Genesis and wanted the full weight of the company behind the Saturn before Sony could release their PlayStation. In the gaming world, the biggest event of the year is the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3. Every summer, all the biggest names in video games get together to show off their plans for the next year to the press and fans. Left with little choice, Tom Kalinske took the stage for Sega's E3 presentation on May 11, 1995, with a surprise announcement. The Sega Saturn would be launching early. In fact, it was launching right now. If you went to your local Toys R Us or Babbage's Electronics this afternoon, you could pick one up today. All right, but what if instead you went to, say, Walmart or KB Toys or another retailer? Well, sorry, they didn't have it. The big box and electronic stores who were left out in the cold for this surprise announcement were pissed, and many retaliated by refusing to stock the Saturn, ever. But it was worse than that. Not only was the Saturn available, surprise, today, but it also cost, surprise, 400 bucks. With inflation, that's about $700 today. The gaming and retail press was absolutely gobsmacked. It was financial suicide. After Sega, Sony took the stage to give their E3 press conference for the upcoming PlayStation. The president of Sony's American gaming division, Steve Race, stepped up to the lectern and with just four syllables, kicked the Saturn into the mud. I'm going to ask Sony Computer Entertainment Presidents of America, Steve Race, to join me for a brief presentation. Ouch! Ouchie, ouchie, ouch! That was the whole speech, and the crowd got on their feet for it. The Sony PlayStation released five months after the Saturn in September. By November, they had already surpassed Sega's sales. Third-party developers fled the Saturn like rats from a sinking ship, When it released, surprise, there were only six games available, and critically, none of them starred a blazing fast blue hedgehog. Sega believed their mascot was the key to saving the flagging console, but nobody within the company could figure out how to make a vehicle for him. The problem was that 3D was all the rage now. Gamers who slapped down 400 simoleons wanted to play a new kind of Sonic, who could spin-dash through realistic, fully-rendered worlds. But not only was it difficult to program 3D games on the Saturn, designers also were having trouble figuring out how to make controlling a character in three-dimensional space fun, instead of totally frustrating. It was a problem that Shigeru Miyamoto would go on to solve with his typically uncanny eclat with Super Mario 64 in 1996, but that was way too late, and Sonic had a unique problem that Mario didn't have anyway. Speed. Two American teams were put on the task of creating a next-generation, Saturn-saving game that the public knew as Sonic Extreme. That's X-Treme. Oh, the 90s. When Sonic's creator, Yuji Naka, came to California to see what they were working on, he's reported to have said to them, simply, Good luck! They didn't get it. 
The two teams were supposed to be both competing and collaborating, which was deeply untenable. The first team was eventually furloughed, but continued to secretly and unofficially work on their version, while the second team panicked. Now it was up to them to create the entire game, rather than just half of it, and they had just a few months to get it done to meet the 1996 Christmas holiday. They worked 20-hour days. Chris Coffin, the director, moved into Sega, living off of a mattress he dragged into the office. Two months before deadline, he developed severe pneumonia and had to be hospitalized. His partner Chris Sen developed a mysterious stress-related disease and was given six months to live. Thankfully, that prognosis turned out to be wrong, but with one team benched and the other incapacitated, Sega had no choice but to give up on Sonic Extreme. They announced to the public that the game had been delayed until 1997, but internally, they had already canceled it entirely. In its whole life cycle, the Sega Saturn, the basket into which the company had put all its eggs, wouldn't receive a single full release featuring its official mascot and savior. It was a perfect analogy for how badly the company was bungling this generation, and it was everything Sega of America President Tom Kalinske had warned them about. In July of 1996, he quit in frustration. In came Bernie Stoller, who had been helping lead the PlayStation. Stoller made no secret of his distaste for the Saturn. He thought it was a bad machine, without support, and that Sega should just jettison the whole thing and start again from scratch. Sega wasn't quite ready to do that yet, but they were getting close. They pinned the last hopes of the 32-bit generation to Yu Suzuki, the other star game designer at the company, who had created arcade hits like Super Hang-On and Space Harrier. Suzuki's biggest success was Virtua Fighter, one of the first 3D fighting games and among the most graphically impressive spectacles around. Virtua Fighter had been ported to the Saturn for launch, and it was basically the only thing that had saved the Saturn from sinking like a stone the moment it hit the water. For the last-ditch move, Yu Suzuki planned an epic, large-scale game with an open world that would serve as a story-centered prequel to Virtua Fighter. Early mock-ups featured a narrative inspired by Chinese martial arts revenge films, with a level of detail and cinema like nothing the gaming public had ever seen. But Yu Suzuki couldn't deliver his vision to the Saturn's stilted hardware on time. The battle was lost. At Sega's 1997 E3 press conference, Bernie Stoller told the whole world, the Saturn is not our future. Consumer and developer confidence, such that it still existed, disappeared like vaporware. The Saturn limped along with a couple of truly great games after the announcement, but it was effectively dead just two years after it was born. Worldwide, Sega had managed to sell just 9.4 million Saturns. For contrast, the Sony PlayStation moved 155 million. Being a Sega fan in 1997 was rough. The company pulled the carpet out from underneath the beloved Genesis. They released a bevy of confusing Band-Aid systems that they didn't properly support. Then, they asked you to throw them $400 for a console they abandoned in just two years without so much as a single Sonic game for your troubles. Many thought Sega was done. Over. Kaputsky. Gamers, retailers, developers, they were short on cash and short on trust. It was hard to see how they could possibly come back. And ultimately, they couldn't. But they had one last Hail Mary plan. It might not work, sure. But if they were going to fail, Sega was going to fail spectacularly. 
I am going to work that beautiful sound into this episode at least two more times, so help me. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. If Sega was going to stand a chance at again winning the console war, they needed to go big. The Saturn was finished. It had been expensive, underpowered, lacking in character, and difficult to develop for. The next box would have to make up for every last one of those mistakes. Two teams were commissioned, one in America set to work on Project Black Belt, while its larger Japanese counterpart was called White Belt. Eventually, the Eastern White Belt design, renamed Katana, won out. Their design was a souped-up 128-bit machine that, like the Genesis before it, contained enough power to match Sega's supercharged arcade offerings. The difference between Katana and its competition, Sony's PlayStation and the Nintendo 64, was enormous. Comparing graphical technology is a sticky wicket. There are a lot of factors at play, and few, if any, games could hope to take advantage of a system's full graphical potential because the CPU also has to handle things like, you know, physics and sound. But the simplest way to illustrate the gulf between Sega's new box and its competition is through polygon count. In 3D animation, objects are built out of polygons, many faced geometric shapes. After effects, textures, lighting, etc., the PlayStation generally topped out at 90,000 or so polygons per second. The Nintendo 64 could do nearly twice as many, around 160,000 polygons. The box Sega was building could push between 3 and 5 million. With that amount of processing power, Sega could make things that nobody had ever seen in a video game before. Things like hands that had fingers instead of blocky squares. Humans that looked essentially like humans instead of cubist interpretations of them. But it didn't just have pure power. It also had what the Saturn had so sorely lacked, elegance. It was super easy to develop for, to port titles from and to, and anything that third parties wanted to bring in from its lower-powered competition could easily be made to run and look better. Katana was shaping up to be a graphical powerhouse and a developer's dream. But it would need to do more than that. It would need to be different. In 1998, they added a dial-up modem. At a time when email was still a novelty, Sega was banking on the future of online gaming. Installer encouraged every game that came out on the system to have some sort of online functionality. There were numerous other unique features, a special Windows operating system, a special proprietary GD-ROM format that held twice as much data as a CD without the extra cost of DVDs, we'll get back to that, 
But the most striking strange feature that consumers were bound to notice was its memory cards. Every system needed a way for players to save their games so they could turn off the console and return to it where they left off later. The Saturn had a built-in battery-powered memory chip, while the Nintendo 64 usually saved game states directly to its cartridges. The PlayStation pioneered the idea of an external memory card, but the version that Sega developed for Katana was way out there. Instead of a nondescript little USB drive-looking thing, their VMU, or Visual Memory Unit, looked like a tiny Game Boy or Tamagotchi, complete with a small LCD display, buttons, and a directional pad. The VMU slipped into the console's controllers, giving players a second tiny screen that could display game information, like allowing football players to choose plays without their competition seeing. When you took the VMU out of the controller, it became an eensy-weensy portable gaming machine. Developers for Sega's new console could build out little mini-games that players could take with them on the go and the progress made in these tiny distractions could give rewards on the main game when you plug the VMU back into the console. With all that, Sega had the coolest, strongest, weirdest piece of tech the gaming world would ever see. Now, it just needed a name. Sega held an open competition to officially title Katana. The winner was Kenji Ino, a rebellious game designer and musician. He called it the Dreamcast. Oh, just plug that noise directly into my veins, why don't you? The Dreamcast had nearly everything. Cool gimmicks, innovative features, powerful hardware, a badass name, and a wicked marketing campaign full of Matrix-style dystopian action sequences, smash cuts, explosions, and a truly evocative slogan. It's thinking. But the most important thing to make sure it had was games. Bernie Stoller's job at Sony had been to build relationships with third-party developers for the PlayStation, and he brought that expertise to the Dreamcast, working to convince skeptical, thrice-bitten game designers to give Sega one last chance. Considering the size of the hill, he did a damn good job climbing it. Some of the biggest names in games, including Capcom and Konami, came on board. But the biggest big boys in the business were Electronic Arts, or EA, and Squaresoft. Squaresoft was known for developing epic role-playing games like Final Fantasy, the most popular genre in Japan, while EA controlled the sports game market with Madden NFL Football, NHL, and NBA Live. Without sports and RPGs, the Dreamcast would be in trouble right from the start. And so it was. Stoller did his best, but neither EA nor Square could be convinced to give the Dreamcast a try. And the third-party support out of the gate wasn't going to be enough to save it. To stand a chance, Sega was going to have to pump out its own games at a rate that nobody, not Nintendo, certainly not Sony, not even the Genesis-era Sega, had managed before. If it was somehow unclear, I love the Dreamcast. Oh, yeah. I love the battery-draining VMU and the strange GD-ROMs that play weird warning tracks if you accidentally put them into a CD player. Hey! Wait a minute! What do you think you're doing? This is a Dreamcast disc! 
There is game data on track one, so please don't use this disc in a normal CD player. We can't save the world from a CD player, so just put us back in the Dreamcast so we can do our job. But the important thing, the thing that turned the Dreamcast into a gaming legend, a machine that fans look back on even 20 years later with swooning sighs, was the game library. To make up for EA's absence, Sega acquired a developer called Visual Concepts and gave them the mandate to outdo EA at its own game, creating a host of revolutionary basketball, football, hockey, soccer, and baseball games known as 2K Sports. To churn out the content that they needed, they broke up their internal game development into a dozen or so semi-autonomous teams, each headed by a visionary rock star director. By the late 90s, mainstream game development had become a very conservative business, a trend that continues to this day. Concepts are focus-tested, mass-marketed, and approved by committee. Ideas that are considered weird or untested or even just new are generally poo-pooed. Stick with what works is the overriding mantra. But out of their desperate straits, Sega totally rejected that and gave what amounted to blanket approval for its many teams to do whatever the hell they wanted. There was UGA, headed by the music-obsessed Tetsuya Mitsuguchi. Mitsuguchi's first Dreamcast offering was a 1970s Laugh-In-inspired science fiction rhythm game, wherein a pink-haired, miniskirted, futuristic television reporter fought off an alien invasion by dancing at it. Sega Wow, whose leader Rakia Nakagawa, made Typing of the Dead, wherein a pair of hard-nosed police officers fight off a zombie invasion by correctly spelling words at them. Hitmaker, whose crazy taxi tasked players with delivering passengers around San Francisco in the most outrageous ways imaginable. Overworks, makers of Skies of Arcadia, a massive Squaresoft threatening RPG about fanciful pirates in a world of floating islands and flying ships. Shunarai's Smilebit created Jet Set Radio, set in a technicolor dystopian Tokyo, where gangs of rollerbladers fought off heavily armed police forces while tagging graffiti on every possible surface, to the boppinest soundtrack ever. Maybe the game that best epitomized the free-flowing, throw-it-all-at-the-wall-and-see-what-sticks attitude of the Dreamcast was Seaman, which included a microphone with which you could speak to a sassy pet goldfish with a human face, narrated by Leonard Nimoy. Let the mating begin. What? What? I don't understand what's going on here. But the two teams that were most important were Yu Suzuki's AM2, maker of Virtua Fighter, who we'll come back to, and, paramountly, Yuji Naka's Sonic Team. Yes, after five years of near-radio silence and a whole console overlooked, Sonic the Hedgehog was back in glorious, if convoluted, 3D. Two minutes of Sonic Adventure was all it took to sell me on the Dreamcast. I was in high school, working at a Babbage's game store for Sega's unprecedented 9999 launch, and I'd simply seen nothing like the speed, graphics, and spectacle of a high-polygon Sonic shooting through loops and corkscrews while an evil killer whale chased along behind him. And I wasn't alone. Can you believe 
that this show, which generally features esoteric history and bizarre science, has spent this long talking about video games? I grow more and more mortified with every word that the true depths of my geekiness are pouring out so fitfully. But this is a field that has seen so many incredible failures and mistakes. From the Atari crash, to Nintendo's totalitarian grip on developers, to the misbegotten mid-90s forays into virtual reality, to the most tragic foundering of all, the Dreamcast. I know, it's been a long, logoreic while, so let's remember the full terms of the Dreamcast's early success. $100 million in sales in the first 24 hours. The largest single entertainment event in history. In slightly more than a month, Sega had a third of the market. Two months later, they were doing better than Sony or Nintendo, despite both companies having years' worth of head starts. So, what went wrong? In short, everything. For starters, Sega was a victim of its own success. The Dreamcast cost a mere $199.99 American, but cost considerably more to manufacture. This was the standard razor and blade model that the industry had followed since the Genesis. But Sega was cash poor and up against some of the biggest corporations in the world. Sony and Nintendo and soon Microsoft, but we'll get there in a minute. With every successful unit sold, Sega was hemorrhaging money. Money that they didn't have. Shortly after the initial success of the Dreamcast, internecine squabbles rocked Sega of Japan, with the president of the company, Nakayama, stepping down. Iso Akawa, the chairman of SCSK, the Japanese technology company that owned Sega, stepped in and took over the role of CEO. Akawa, it seems, never really thought Sega should be making hardware at all. Soon, Okawa got rid of Sega of America president Bernie Stoller and replaced him with Peter Moore, who came to the company through Reebok and ultimately made the call to discontinue their console business. Third-party development started falling off, with only a few companies continuing to support the Dreamcast, mostly through ports of arcade or other console games. But probably the most important factor in the fall of Sega was competition. On March 1st, 1999, just six months before the Dreamcast's American launch, Sony announced the PlayStation 2. Not only did Sony have a store of goodwill that Sega lacked and a much more powerful machine, but they had made an important decision that Sega had not. Sega thought DVDs were too expensive, but Sony owned the format, and they saw DVD as a benefit, not a hindrance. The PS2 would not just be the most powerful gaming machine, but in a world where DVD players were still new and hot technology, it would be the cheapest one on the market. The Dreamcast had a seven-month head start on the PS2. Sony's argument to gamers was simple. Wait. Wait for us. It'll be worth it. Sega, then, only had Christmas to convince people to come over to them. To do that, they turned once again to Yu Suzuki and AM2, who had continued working on the massive cinematic kung fu epic that they had begun building for the Saturn. For Christmas of 1999, PlayStation had Final Fantasy IX, and Nintendo had The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. Both amazing, incredible games in well-known, long-established, and revered franchises. Sega aimed to beat them both with Yu Suzuki's labor of love. 
Shenmue. A massive project with scale the world has never seen has finally been unveiled. It's not an RPG. It's not a movie. A world that transcends games. Shenmue was like nothing that had ever been made, and maybe like nothing that's ever been made again. It told a simple story of a 17-year-old boy who witnesses his father's murder at the hands of a mysterious stranger and becomes increasingly obsessed with getting revenge. It's a simple plot, but presented in a totally novel form. Shenmue presented an open world, a digital version of 1986 Yokosuka, Japan. In October of 2001, Grand Theft Auto 3 came out for the PlayStation 2 and blew gamers' minds the world over. In GTA 3, players could roam a gigantic open-world sandbox depiction of New York City, whiling away hours getting into car chases, gunfights, and heists. Since then, games that provide large, non-linear spaces that give players the freedom to go and do what they want have become the norm. But Shenmue's approach to the sandbox concept was something altogether different. Sure, players were free to get Ryo into fights, or take him to an arcade to play games from Sega's 80s golden days, but the world of Shenmue traded in extreme detail. Shenmue. Every building was designed by real-world architects. Every drawer on every cabinet could be opened. In Grand Theft Auto, the various people on New York's streets were just generic scenery. They were a handful of models that were used and reused. They didn't have anything to say or do. They were there to present the appearance of a city. That's how pretty much all open-world games since have handled things. But in Shenmue, every single individual person was unique. They had names, homes, jobs, schedules, personalities. Whether they mattered or not, the days moved from morning to noon to night, and the weather followed the historical data of Yokosuka. And where Grand Theft Auto viewed its world as a judgmentless playground for players to wreak havoc as they pleased, Shenmue's world had a deep and heavy morality, as Ryo Hazuki became more and more isolated by his quest for revenge, neglecting his friends, his family, his future. I'm begging you, please take it over. My mind is made up. I must go. I will have my revenge. It is one of the most divisive games ever created. The controls are often awkward. The voice acting is... I want to ask you something. What? Where are you from? Yeah. And rather than the exciting, pulse-pounding, action-packed, epic adventure promised by trailers and previews, people who bought Shenmue found themselves embroiled in a slow introspective mystery story, a video game that was more a character study than it was Virtua Fighter. But to many, including myself, Shenmue was almost like magic. Like Super Mario Brothers or Sonic the Hedgehog before it, it cut a new frontier for what games were capable of, not just in its gigantic realistic open world, but in its goals and obstacles. Shenmue presented gaming as a mature and sophisticated narrative art form, capable of telling stories with real, grounded human psychology. 
it was a gigantic failure. Well, okay, that's not fair. Shenmue ended up selling more than one million copies worldwide, which is very good. And it likely helped sell a good number of Dreamcasts along with it. But Shenmue was also the most expensive video game ever made at the time, and by a long shot. In a day when the biggest games could cost as much as $30 million to develop and market, it took more than $70 million just to make Shenmue and five years of development. Like so many things about the Dreamcast, it was a beautifully foolish endeavor. Sega's weird white box got one more year of opportunity after that Christmas holiday. When the PS2 released, there was a problem on the manufacturing line that led to deep shortages, which Sega took advantage of by loading shelves with Dreamcasts and cutting their price down to a mere 99 bucks. As a teenage game store employee, I must have said the sentence, Sorry, we don't expect to have any PS2s for at least the next month, but how about this Dreamcast? At least a thousand times. And even if you could get your hands on an early PS2, there wasn't much to play on it. The games that were promised down the line looked incredible, but what was available for the first six months was practically nothing. That didn't matter, though, because it played DVDs. And of course, while dropping the Dreamcast's price helped Sega sell more machines, it also caused them to bleed even more money they didn't have. During the Christmas of 2000, with the PS2 in short supply and our heroic little underdog priced to move, the Dreamcast did some of its most brisk business. Yet that only put Sega deeper in the hole. The PS2's launch, troubled as it was, had already lapped the Dreamcast's record-setting 9999, and with good games finally coming online and consoles becoming available to purchase in stores, Sega's problems were just going to get worse. Nintendo announced their next-generation console, the GameCube. Soon, Sega would be fighting with both its rivals again, when it was barely standing, battling one. Then, another competitor entered the ring, Microsoft. They'd worked with Sega to build an operating system, Windows CE, for the Dreamcast. As Bernie Stoller had feared, it had all been a Trojan horse, a way for Microsoft's people to get an eye on how the business worked. The Xbox was slated to release on November 15, 2001, and Microsoft made a big show of it. Bill Gates said in interviews that he was willing to lose billions of dollars to secure Xbox as a major player. They had the pockets to support it, whether it took off or not. There was just no room for Sega. They were being buffeted at every angle. In January of 2001, just 15 months after its debut, and mere days after its meteoric holiday rush, Sega of America President Peter Moore made the call. They would be discontinuing the Dreamcast, and there would be nothing to replace it. The heads of Sega's development teams, AM2, Smilebit, Hitmaker, WoW, Sonic Team, were given the news to deliver to their subordinates. What did this mean? Were games going to be canceled? Would Sega be developing third-party now? Were people going to lose their jobs? The answer to all those questions was yes. Production on the Dreamcast officially ended on March 31st, 2001. The box was marked down to a price just above free to liquidate every last unit. Games continued to trickle out for it, 
but nearly all of them were also made available on the consoles of Sega's former competitors. There was Crazy Taxi for PS2, Shenmue 2 for Xbox, and, in the decision that most dropped jaws for gamers, Sonic the Hedgehog came to the Nintendo GameCube, hat in hand. The mascot, who had once humbled and beaten the Big N, was now relegated to playing second fiddle to Mario on his own turf. Many people, developers, journalists, even fans, were eager to find the silver lining in Sega's disgrace. Aside from the Genesis, the company had never really produced a successful piece of hardware. Now that they were no longer burdened by that, they could focus on what made them truly great, the games. I think it's safe to say that, for the most part, that optimism was short-lived. Sega is still out there, alive and kicking, although now they're known as Sega Sammy, having been bought out from the brink of bankruptcy by a Japanese pachinko machine company. They do make some very good games, and publish others, too. But no one would argue that they were anything more than a shadow of their former selves. Some people think that maybe the designers at Sega just never got the hang of working on other people's hardware. But what is really the case is that the burden of trying to support their flagging machines is what had given Sega's teams the freedom to make such amazing experiences. As a mere game developer, they have been governed by the simpler market forces of making sure every game is a successful and profitable product. It didn't matter anymore if a risky endeavor might help them out down the line. Most of the development teams were either broken up, folded together, or just plain ditched. Within the next five years, most of Sega's former development heads, the rock stars who had been given the latitude to make the Dreamcast such a beloved failure, left the company in frustration. Even Yu Suzuki and Yuji Naka, creators of Shenmue and Sonic respectively, finally had enough and moved on. Look at things one way, and the Dreamcast seems like it was doomed from the start. Look at it another, and you can envision a dozen ways in which it might have succeeded. What if they'd gone with DVDs? What if they've gotten EA to make games for them? What if SCSK hadn't taken control of the company? Sega got so much right about their final console offering that it's tempting to think up scenarios in which they could have prevailed. They understood the allure of online gaming long before their competitors. If you really want to push an analogy, you could say that the portable gaming memory unit, the VMU, was a predecessor of Nintendo's massively popular Switch, which goes from home console to portable. It's a stretch, but mm, hey. The most important thing, presaged by the brief but burning Dreamcast era, goes back to the risks and the quirks, the weird ideas, the sense of fun and imagination and possibility that pervaded it. Today, major AAA game makers, of which Sega is now one, are as conservative as they have ever been. Maybe more so. But now, there are also independent game makers, teams of one or two or a dozen people who are able to succeed on novelty, joy, and art. That spirit, that ethos, tracks directly back to Sega's little white Hail Mary. In that way, the dream lives on. Now, how about some ska? Music for this episode by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, Chance De La Soul, Alex McCulloch, and Anime Is Trash. Special thanks to all our Patreon supporters, especially Wendy Huber, Mike Latina, 
Beth Keithley, Scott Walters, Kellen McGuire, Kent West, Sam Zierden, Matthew Miniman, and Hayes Warden. This story was a bit of a departure, huh? How'd you like it? Let us know. Find the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash theconstant. We are a proud part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, who have just recently added a new member that is also a very old member, the first podcast. Yes, you heard that right, the first podcast ever, and the longest running. Open Source with Christopher Lydon is an American conversation with global attitude. Each week, Open Source brings you some of the most fascinating and intelligent people in art, ideas, and politics, interviewed by New York Times and WGBH reporter Christopher Lydon the best radio interlocutor this side of Terry Gross. Open Source's latest episode, Pick Your Populism, finds Christopher seated across the table from Mark Blythe, an insuppressibly Scottish economics and politics professor who will make you feel a thousand times smarter about your world by the time he's done. Find Open Source at radioopensource.org or your preferred podcasting app or through the link in the episode notes. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to Jellyvision, who localized the befuddling and beautiful seaman for English-speaking audiences. This has been The Constant. Oh, yeah, that's the spot.